Pulls up the three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome to the MVP cast of me, Mark Woods. Thank you as always for joining us. Um, great guests coming up in this one. When I say up front, we are still looking for a new sponsor for the podcast for the season. If you are interested, if you'd like to get your name out there, you can get in touch with me at the usual channels. Now, we'd like to do something a bit different. And this week, we're going to talk to arguably the best referee that we've got going in the country at this moment in time. I mean, he's someone that is refereeing at the very highest level in Euroleague, which is fantastic to see, also in the BBL. Um, but also, he, I guess, has been at the centre of an, one of the biggest stories, or you know, is, is caught up in one of the biggest stories in the world this year, which is the, the war that Russia's put on Ukraine, um, because that's where he's from. And um, he's going to tell us a little bit about that and his officiating career. So, Edward Udiansky, welcome to the MVP cast. Yes, hi, Mark. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for... Very kind words, and uh, thank you for having me at your postcards. I'm really happy to be here and share some of my experience, and uh, uh, happy to answer any of your questions. Let's let's start. I want to start with the journey because as you're in Ukraine, you know you're you're based here. Um, before we even get what what's been happening back home, but how did you end up here? Where 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 how did this journey take you to our humble nation? Okay, um, I'll start from the beginning, which started actually 20 years ago. Uh, I arrived to uh, United Kingdom back in 2003, and I still remember it was 23rd of June. And I took a bus from Kiev uh, to London, which was a journey around 38 hours, which was a bit painful because I'm tall and seats and the bus are very close to each other. So I was sitting almost all the time in, in between seats on the floor. But uh, my journey started here, not from the good life, to be honest with you, because I used to play basketball. I used to play basketball professionally back in Ukraine. At the uh, age of 17, I was uh, drafted by uh, one of the teams, equivalent to probably around uh, Division One uh, NBL in uh, Basketball England. So it's basically Division One team. And then we won that competition and went to Super League, which is uh, equivalent to BBL in uh, this country. So... Uh, at 17, I was getting paid for playing basketball. And actually, just in, to understand, I was getting paid $150 a month. And my mom used to work in the university, being professor of mathematics, she was getting $30 a month. So you can see as a young person, I was doing pretty well for my age. But unfortunately, injury happened. I had actually the same injury three times in a row on my left knee ligaments. But every time it was more serious and more serious. And at some point, the doctor said to me, told me, look, you go to the United States, you pay $30,000, and you're going to get operation, and you can carry on playing. Otherwise, stop playing basketball, or you won't have a future. You wouldn't be even walk properly, because your knee is uh, completely fall, falling apart without ligaments. So I... At that point, I stopped playing basketball, and I thought, what shall I do? What should I do in the future? And uh, our university, because I was in agriculture university, was sending students for uh, summer experience or summer work uh, abroad. And that time, it was different kind of programs, including Hobbes and Concordia. I think Concordia still exists. And I came to UK uh, to one of the nurseries, which called Glenville, 
where I'm currently employed. And uh, I studied there from harvesting tomatoes. So when I arrived, I remember I had first meeting uh, in the canteen, uh, which is uh, basically canteen for workers. And it was a couple people coming, one from park house, one from the glass houses, greenhouses. And manager from glass house just said, I need just two people who can who could speak English. And I said, yeah, I can try. So uh, I, I raised my hand. And it was another guy who was uh, sitting next to me all my journey from Kiev to London by bus. And we became friendly. And he said, Edward, uh, uh, I want to come with you. I said, OK, put your hand up as well. And so he told as well, I could speak English. <laughs> so both of us were taken to the glass house. And uh, the rest was were taken to park house. And uh, since that, I actually... Uh, understood that there is a terminology you got green fingers so it's not easy it's not easy to learn growing but once you're in that uh, industry and you understand and you got passion for growing uh, you can start basically growing plants and uh, from harvesting tomato i became now site manager we're currently employing on my site 150 people uh, mid-season where we've got season going and uh, on, on average we got uh, when season finished, we still got around 80 people left on site. And uh, yes, we're just going and growing everything. Starting tomato, peppers, cucumbers, aubergines. And we're supplying uh, one of the biggest supermarkets in the UK. It's a busy, busy old trip. And, uh, and all from a bus journey. All for the bus journey, yes. And actually, it was uh, one... Uh, before that bus journey, because I used to play basketball, I went to Poland, I went to Belarus, I went obviously all around Russia, all around Ukraine, but I never been abroad further than Poland. So when we started to drive, you can imagine that we went through Poland, we went through Germany, we went so from through a little bit of France, a little bit of Belgium, and obviously England. It was actually very exciting as well. Tired, tired. I was tired, but very excited, man. What did you do to keep yourself, you know? Occupied in the bus journey because that, that was pre, you know, loading your phone up with Netflix. To, to be honest, at that time it was <laughs> no Netflix. It was no even if it was not even colorful mobile phones. We still had this kind of you know Nokia thirty three zero one. I don't remember even how it's called. <laughs> so I remember I was uh, obviously playing. The, it was one game which is Snake. You just picking up dots <laughs> and just going around the screen. Uh, but looking back, to be honest. Uh, honestly, I don't, I don't remember what I did for uh, 30, 38 hours, but I remember it was painful because my knees were aching all, all my journey. What did um, you say about that career in, in Ukraine? I mean, it's a company that, you know, a country that a few Brits have gone and played in over the years. Um, what was the system like? I mean, you, you've, you've gained an appreciation of what the British system was like. And obviously we've, we've seen... The old Russian system, which was based on the Lithuanian system of you know, you know these big central academies and you know state state sponsored you know basketball you know programs. Um, what was that education in basketball like for you? Uh, if you if you talk about because uh, I can I can catch up a little bit with what uh, children doing in schools. Mm. So it's, it's same same probably like you said the Soviet uh, time education, but. Uh, as soon as uh, Soviet Union collapsed, obviously some countries decided to go a little bit west and some countries decided to stay back in USSR. So I think Ukraine always wanted to go forward towards, towards uh, west, towards Europe, uh, getting some experience, uh, student exchange, teachers exchange in universities. 
in the schools we had uh, i remember we had already that time i was seven eight we started to have english classes in school as well so we started to to learn english not as obviously as a second language but uh, we had like three four hours a week of english uh not perfect based one you know but i know i knew that time that london was the capital of great britain <laughs> let's put it this way and uh, i could have you know i could have said good morning hello how are you how much did it cost how much does it cost so yeah that was basics but basketball wise uh you know i didn't start playing i didn't start playing basketball straight away when i was young i was pretty short or little let's say when i was little and uh, i actually went to figure skating and i went to wrestling i went to boxing i didn't play football to be honest i never played football in my life but uh, at some point when i was nine years old i started to stretch up and uh, my uh, mom said to my father just find uh, you know basketball and i was lucky because i went to one of the best uh, basketball children coach in our uh, town I, I, I lived in kharkiv actually kharkiv uh, was constantly under under missiles now from uh, russian federation but uh, also I'm happy to say that yesterday Kharkiv and Kharkiv region was, uh, you know, clear, clear up of uh, Russian army forces, which is uh, which was good news to hear. But uh, going back to the time, uh, you know, basketball school in Kharkiv was very strong. As you know, it was a lot of still Soviet Union uh, uh, coaches which were left, and they were really good to be honest with you. They, they had really really good basics. I remember on my first. Uh, still remember so many years long on my first uh, lesson i went there and i started to shoot basketball and the coach told me start doing layups so i started doing layups and i said it's a bit boring too easy so i went on the free throw line and started to do jump shots he came to me he basically you know uh, said to me i don't want you to do jump shots until you're gonna do layups 100 times in a row without missing then you start jump shots so that's how serious he was so he said first you know how to do jump shots uh, sorry, how, first you know how to do layups, and after you're not going to be doing jump shots. So yeah, starting from the roots, from bases, you know, we do fundamental, fundamental in basketball, and then you start to grow up. And actually, it helped because for my age, 17 years old, you know, being drafted or moved to another city from Kharkiv, I went to play for Sumi. And uh, at 17 years old, it meant that, you know, I could play a bit basketball, especially earning some money as well. Did you get an inspiration? I mean, the big Ukrainian export to the NBA was Sasha Volkov, who's been involved with the, the, the Federation quite a lot over the last decade. I mean, was there an availability of being able to follow him, being able to watch him, you know, and, and sort of, I guess, draw something from having a totem making it big across the US? Uh, obviously, everybody knew about uh, Sasha Volkov, and uh, obviously, everybody knew about Olympic Games where USSR won. And we also had uh, one of the best uh, teams uh, in Soviet Union was Budivelnik from Kyiv. And uh, obviously, as a young lad, I was watching basketball. But because of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, limited availability on TV, I remember I used to go and used to buy Polish magazine with NBA photos there. And I used to have a lot of big posters on my wall. That time it was obviously Michael Jordan, Kevin Garnett, Steph Marbury, Allen Iverson, you know, they were all, all over my, uh, my wall. But uh, that was not coming from uh, any Ukrainian magazine, but it was Polish magazine, which uh, 
they used to sell in some local shop, you know, and it was interesting. But I was uh, I was always fan of NBA, and I was always that time, and uh, also of Michael Jordan, and he was my idol, and uh, I wanted to play like him. But obviously, his his physique and his personality is unique. But uh, dreaming about NBA as a kid, always dreamt about it. But as soon as I started to get older, I understood it's almost unreachable. You definitely need to be not only a good player, but I definitely need to know some people who know some people who can come and watch you. And Ukraine at the time, I don't think we had any scouts. And uh, obviously dreams, it's good to be to, to dream, but also you need to hit reality sometimes that your path finishing at certain moments. On uh, basketball, you're probably reaching your ceiling and you cannot play more better than you were playing already. And interestingly, I, I used to dream to play in NBA until I had my injury as well. But at some point before even injury, I said, how do you really go there? Because uh, you can go, you could go through college scheme, which uh, I had no idea how to do it. Or if you, had, if you had money maybe to go and play somewhere abroad so you can be seen, or you needed to play for some basketball team in Ukraine, which used to play probably in some Euro Cup, Euro League competition that time. And then maybe somebody could see you and, and bring you to NBA. But again, when you're 17 or 18 or 19, you know, everybody's thinking of you, okay, he's in the future, in the future sometimes maybe. But as you know, when you're 17, 18, 19, you're thirsty, you think you know everything and you think you're ready and you're getting upset if people say, no, you can sit on the bench for a little bit because I've got that guy who is more experienced to finish that game. So, yeah. Towards the, the leap or door open for this sort of second basketball career, which has done you so well as a referee. Uh, interesting. Interestingly, I never officiated in, uh, back in Ukraine. Never officiated apart, I'm saying straight away apart, from two games uh, when I was 14 years old and it was, I had actually, I was coming back from, I, I broke my uh, leg. Uh, it was winter. I was actually coming back from basketball um, training and I slipped. And, uh, and I slipped on the way to underground. We had stairs and I slipped there and I broke my leg. And I said, oh, it's no good. So when I was recovering, from my broken leg, my coach told me, oh, tomorrow we're going to have game. Just grab the whistle and go to the referee, please. So I did go there and I started to officiate in terms of, you know, blowing my whistle. And I said, well, how, what shall I show? So I remember I was blowing my whistle without showing anything to the table, just telling them somebody hit someone. And after the game, <laughs> I was given to Grivnas. It's a currency in uh, Ukraine. So they gave me to Grivna, said, thank you very much. And that time, the one kilo of uh, chocolate was around five Grivna. So I went and bought myself almost half kilo of chocolate <laughs> and, uh, and obviously shared with my sister. But uh, that was the reward for that. So it was uh, the only game I officiated in my life before coming to UK. While being in UK, as you know, when you come, you need to settle down. You need to do... I came up, I came with visa, but I needed to do with extension and also ask for um, home office to extend my visa to give me work permission. And while you're waiting for that, you cannot do much, you know, in terms of work as well. So once I had all my visa sorted out, I had uh, everything is legalized. I said, I miss basketball. 
I told myself, how could I come back to basketball because I miss it. So I went to play for, it was, it was a beer league in Hertfordshire. That time I used to live in Hatfield. Uh, and there was beer league. They played in Woodson Park. So I went there to play some basketball games. And uh, next point I said, what? I remember when I was 14, I took a whistle. <laughs> and maybe that's something I could do because, you know, that game, I actually got even paid, you know, for something which I actually enjoyed. So that's, uh, that was back in 2007. And uh, 2008, I attended, uh, I contacted Basketball England. And they told me that I needed to go through the bottom, from the bottom to the top. So I needed to attend level one basketball referee course, then level two, then level three. And obviously the top grade of basketball officiating course here is level four domestic league. So uh, when I went to level one back in 2008, uh, in London it was, uh, the tutor told me, sorry, but it's all about basketball knowledge, some showing signals, how to show numbers. And you know that. So you need to go straight to, to level two. So I contacted Basketball England and uh, said, uh, I was told to go to, to level two. It was March 2008. They said, ah, yeah, we've got level two now in June in Birmingham, two-day course. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll go there. So I went to Birmingham. When I went there, it was rule test, also some mechanic on the floor. And the tutor from there said to me, told me, oh, you know how to, you know rules, obviously, because I used to play basketball. And uh, you know how to move on the court. So you need to go to level three. <laughs> I said, okay. So I contacted basketball and I said, where was uh, level three course? And they told me, ah, it's in Manchester in August. So I said, okay, I'll go there. That time it was, by the way, uh, the tutor in level one course with Patricia Fairclough, which is a London-based mm. uh, table official. Uh, level two was uh, our referee, which is currently a FIBA referee, former FIBA referee, and uh, currently BBL referee, Steve Ellis. And uh, the, the level three course was with Ian Pollard. Uh, he died, unfortunately, uh, from uh, brain cancer. But uh, we still remember him and love him. But uh, he was my level three total. And he was, uh, it was one week course in Manchester. So that time I had a, a newborn uh, daughter. And I said to my wife, look, I don't want to leave you here at home for one week going to Manchester. So come with me. So we, we went to Manchester. I still remember it was some kind of Premier Inn. And uh, so while I was doing, it was Amici Basketball Center was a basketball level three course. While I was doing basketball all day long, uh, she was actually with uh, my daughter in the room. Uh, and uh, so I was leaving in the morning, coming back in the evening. We had the uh, evening time together, but all day I was, you know, spending uh, with basketball. And after one week, I successfully passed level three as well. So I actually did <laughs> a long path within uh, one year. And it's only because at that time, it's hard to understand where you are as a, as a person, as official, you know, which kind of knowledge, you know, you got. So I needed to start from the bottom and I passed basically all of them. Yeah. So that's how it started. How much do you think, I mean, the answer to this is obviously a lot, but you know, what do you take, you know, from being a player um, that you you think helps you most as a referee from that sort of insight of being out there and being officiated rather than being the official? It's a, uh, you, you just answered a question. You said a lot, but uh, it's primitive answer. But uh, going back, going on the courts, obviously you understand emotions as a player. 
And you understand sometimes you're frustrated, not with officiating on the court, which is, you know, some officials who never played, they think it's against their decision. But I understand that sometimes you can be frustrated with yourself. You can put your hands up or even swear to your own action or non-action, which led to missed basket or some stupid fall rather than towards official. So you have to understand that definitely. And as a player, being, oh, sorry, when I used to play basketball and now officiating, I understand that kind of reaction that is not directed to the official. Then the basketball knowledge of zone defense, personal defense, where people are going to be running, anticipating the play. That's the most important to, in preventative officiating. And in preventative, and officiating in terms of you know where this person is going to end up. So you're going to position yourself with the open angle. For example, when player coming to, to the three-point line after the screen to receive the ball, you don't want to stay in the same position because once the player comes and he's in front of you turning to shoot, you can be straight line watching through his back and then you cannot see that gap. And if any contact happens, you're going to be guessing because you cannot see through people's back. So when this person coming for the person coming for the curl, for example, you step in already on the left, on the right, depends if he's right shooter or left shooter. Also, you need to understand that. And then when person receiving the ball and decided to shoot, you're already in a good position to anticipate. So knowing the place, uh, post place, low post, top, uh, you know, uh, top post, oh, sorry, high post, uh, then you got any kind of screens, cutting through the paint. All that also happens you. Not to anticipate the play in terms of, you know, be ready because you're thinking, ah, now because play is going there, he is late, he might fall. Because if you're anticipating the play, you might call the foul very quick without actually player being fouled. But to know what's going to happen next or to understand what could happen next, then you're in good position to make the right decision. So yes, being, playing basketball and knowing the place, knowing basketball from inside, understanding emotions and understanding plays, it, it helps big time to officiate. You got a call a few years ago to, to kind of join the EuroLeague roster. And you know, for those who don't understand, obviously that also incorporates doing games in Euro Cup. But you know, it's the high level, it's, you know, it's the NBA of Europe. And you know, it's, it's, it's big, big time players. Um, it, the speed is fast. Um, I mean, our, our good friend Richard Stokes, who used to be head of referees in, in, in the BBL and, you know, and now has for some years headed up EuroLeague. Yeah, you sort of mentioned before, you know, he was as a great patriot. He'd like he wanted to get officials from this country through, and we've seen some of them go into you know high levels in, in FIBA Europe comp competitions. You know, he was casting his eye around. You're refereeing at that point in the BBL. Um, were you surprised that you plucked out of this and gone? Yeah, we, we think you're someone who who can cope with this or make this transfer. I tell you, I tell you one short answer to this uh, question. I share that uh, news with some highly rated uh, person in UK in terms of basketball officiating, and I said I was invited to Euroleague. His answer was, "I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't uh, expect it to be so quick." <laughs> so that was the that actually was probably the best description of what's happened to me because somebody told me I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't expect it was going to to happen so quick. So I was obviously I was really happy. I, I tell you, I tell you honestly, I was a bit stupid when I received phone call because I kept Richard on the phone for 30 minutes talking about that invitation when probably only after two, three minutes I'm supposed to say, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's all. <laughs> that's the only thing I'm looking back because Richard didn't need to sell to me that it's going to be EuroLeague, it's going to be EuroCup competition, it's best competition. I already knew it. I already was watching EuroLeague and EuroCup competition at that time. I knew some referees from EuroLeague, EuroCup. I knew how professional they were. I was watching games, not because only games, but because of their officiating technique, of their personality, of their body language. So, uh, and being invited there, it's, it's, it's a high, it's a, it's, it's a top where you can be, especially in Europe. And you rightly mentioned that NBA is uh, another competition which is uh, highly regarded. But for me, EuroLeague is even better than NBA nowadays. We spoke a little bit about 1990s when uh, Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan was playing. It was physical. It was one-on-one -on -one defense. You know, it was a lot of things. Where now we got a lot of shooters shooting from seven, eight meters from uh, far away. You know, so it's completely different basketball. But I still think Euroleague is very physical. It's very entertainment with lots of contact and uh, the great fans and the best fans, I think, in the world. Did you, um, I mean, it sounds like you were kind of giving up for this, but what did, what specifically did you do? You talked about professionalism, which is a big difference. Um, but what had you done to kind of put yourself in that position that you could seamlessly make that transition or, you know, be... Be a Euroleague referee in waiting. Discipline, you, you correctly mentioned, and it's not discipline of the court, but on, also on the court. This is something which uh, which doesn't come because you want to be disciplined. It doesn't come first year. You have to spend time training yourself, and it's not only you train yourself being in a Euro Cup, Euroleague competition. You also train yourself doing uh, home games in terms of BBL, NBL, because. Uh, more games you do. If I come back from Euroleague game and uh, I had feedback to work on something straight away, same week, I'm doing it. I come, I come back on Thursday, Friday night, Saturday, it's, I'm already practicing it because when I go back on Wednesday following week, if I'm going to have another person observing me or even same person coming back and watching on TV, I don't want them to tell me, oh, I told you something last week and you're not doing it. But discipline in the court, it means not only play calling, but also understanding when you can see the play, you can analyze the play, but you need to understand that's in the primary area of your colleague who had this play from the, from the start. And maybe because you're finishing, if you're looking at the end of the play, you can make mistake by guessing because you didn't know how it developed. So you're leaving that play to the primary. And uh, that's actually hard because sometimes you got dual courage, you know, when both referees are, in, are responsible for, for the same play, but you have to understand where this play started and who was in charge of it until last moment. And obviously when the play comes into your area, you have to be disciplined enough to recognize illegal contact and call the foul or disciplined enough to make sure you don't go and anticipate something. Keep your air away from your mouth. We, 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 we're told if you don't want to make mistake, analyze the play, keep your air in your belly. So then you say, okay, I could see it. That's contact. It's not a foul. We can carry on. That's contact. That's a foul. I have to call it now. You go, I mean, you go from, well, let's take this coming week. This weekend you'll do a BBL game. Then you do an MBL game, which, you know, is second tier. I know it's a semi-final, but even so. Then next week you start moving into Euro Cup and very soon you'll do some EuroLeague games what's the kind of difference in the way I know you'll, you'll try and approach these all you know, the same way, but do you feel, say you do an NBL game, as you'll do Reading Hamill this weekend. Do you feel a little bit more 
I don't know if is there a different kind of pressure in the sense that you know people now have expectations of you and if you, the officials that you're working with I guess will want to try and you know, learn off you or be guided from you you know, do, does it does it kind of change the way maybe the role that you have in a very small way in these you know from say NBL going to your league uh, to be honest with you, it's all about approach to the game. You shouldn't approach the game like you're coming from the top to the bottom, like you said, the second time. But you need to remember for these teams, for these players, for these club owners and for these coaches and for their fans, that's the best league or the best level they can play nowadays. So for them, every game is very important. So when you go to refer any game, you need to understand that you're there to serve the game and you're there to serve both teams and competition by doing your best. And uh, so when you come to any game, you cannot say, okay, this is second division. And I, yesterday I did uh, BBL. Okay, thank, you need to thank me for being here because I'm coming from the top now. That's not an approach that's completely wrong. If somebody have that idea, because when you go there, you still need to deliver. Fall is the fall. Violation is violation. Players are playing the same basketball, but unfortunately their, their technique and their abilities are limited. So with this kind of games coming another difficulty because they become a little bit scrappy and there is a lot of contact. But the problem is that it's more contact than in the top league, but not every contact is a foul. Every foul is a contact, but not every contact is a foul. So when you come into that league, you need to start picking up what's obvious to everyone not only what's obvious to you and what's right for the game. And the problem is when you go down, you got another two officials with you or one official if it's two-person officiating. Well, you're probably not sometimes on the same level. Even if you got very good one hour pre-game before the game, you arrive one hour, sorry, and you have 20, 25 minutes pre-game talking about how we're going to call it, how we're going to you know, participate in that game. Unfortunately, again, you may be on a different page. And then it's always problem about consistency. The only good thing when you're when you, like you sell well-known and when you come to their coaches and players, they probably saw you officiating top league and they trust you. And they know that if anything happens in this game, you're going to deal with that. And if you don't deal with that, then you need to ask yourself, Am I, do I belong to the top? Because if people expecting from you something, at some point you have to deliver. How do you find that challenge though from going from and you know, an NBL on a Friday night, say Hamel, turning up an Olympiacos the next Thursday. Because you know, if you look at teams, and we've seen this with Leicester probably quite dramatically the last few times they've gone into Europe, particularly a few years ago, you play at our level domestically, and it's not as high. And then you go to Europe, and you have to make adjustments. And obviously, you know it's coming, but it can be hard because you're you're asking someone to jog and then sprint in a sense. Is is that analogy similar for a referee that you have to find a way to make that adjustment? Because obviously the players are a lot faster. The, the, the read of the game is a lot faster at EuroLeague. Uh, it's a great question. I've got two answers for that. First answer, it's, uh, it's not only about uh, sprint, it's got about also rules. Rules are the same for basketball. But as you know, EuroLeague got different rule about, um, about no charge semicircle under the basket. If play is airborne and somebody is there already on your way, it, it cannot be offensive foul by FIBA rule. But by FIBA rule, it's, you don't call also defensive foul, it's just a no call. What we do in EuroLeague and EuroCup competition, we call a defensive foul. That's one thing. 
Then three-point shotters covered by lead official as well because you are there. So first, answer, first point of answer to your question is first it's mechanic and uh, and some tricks to the rules which are different. So I need to switch my mind from weekend competition, domestic one with FIBA rules and FIBA kind of mechanics, going back to uh, Euroleague or Euro Cup where you need to remember that for this competition, this is set of the rules. But it's not only me, don't understand me wrong. Even ACB referees, which is the top league in Europe, they have to come to yearly competition and they have to switch as well. So this is one interesting challenge, let's put it this way. And this comes again with the practice and understanding uh, that uh, going from one domestic competition to European competition, and only if you, you cannot give answer, ah, Last week I officiated that rule, now I just forgot. No, you have to deliver. So once you understand it, you go there to do your game, to do your job correctly, and uh, follow department, officiating department uh, rules, then you do a good job. That's one thing. So you need to switch, and you, there are no excuses, you have to switch. Second one is because of quality. You correctly mentioned EuroLeague is, is fast, EuroCup less fast, but it's still faster than BBL and NBL, obviously. So it took me one year, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When, when I officiated my first EuroLeague and EuroCup game, I was shocked. I'll be honest with you, I was shocked. I said, wow, it's so fast. And then suddenly, what's happening? You're staying and you're looking at the same play and your colleague from uh, secondary calling the foul. I said, what's happened? Then you watch the video after the game in EuroCup, EuroLeague, and actually it was a foul. But because it happened so fast, you just didn't call it. When you so what basically happened? I remember also we had the, one of the finals I officiated here domestically, and I had three officials with me, and we were looking at the same play, and we called rebounding foul. Not we. I called rebounding foul, and after the game, the we had assessor. So basically, referee coach who was checking referees, and he asked both referees, me and my colleague. He said to me. To me, he said, okay, you call the foul, but he asked the colleague, it was your primary, why didn't you call? The answer from the colleague, Edward was too fast. I couldn't do it. He just took, he, I didn't take the call. I actually made delayed whistle, but my delayed whistle was faster than the primary of somebody who was uh, watching the same play. So after one year, you pick up that. But obviously you have to officiate in that condition. You have to officiate in this environment. And uh, then you just get some abilities, let's put it this way, or you develop them, to be honest. That's why, for me, it's probably, I don't know if, I, if it's correct to say, it's harder to establish myself in uh, European competition, top European competition, like EuroLeague, EuroCup, as, uh, as official, or was harder to build up my experience, because every week I was coming back to the weaker competition domestically. It's much easier if you come from French championship, German one, or Spanish, we just mentioned it. Now it's Italian one, Turkish one. When officials come in from there, they officiate EuroLeague teams in domestic competition every week. So they got same speed, same players, same coaches, same pressure from fans as well every week. So yes, uh, it's a bit of a disadvantage, but I must, say, I must say this disadvantage became my advantage because somehow... I have to get to that level without having that competition. So instead of, of uh, crying and saying, oh, poor me, I have not the best uh, domestic competition, what I did, I just started to break down more cliffs, watching more games, 
if I'm uh, on the court in BBL, I run the same speed as I would run in Euroleague. Even if if the place is is uh, slower, I'm still trying to keep the same pace as I would do in Euroleague. Going for transition from trail to league as fast as possible. Trying to position myself and read the play. Actually, it's easier to do in domestic competition because it's slower. So you can be in good position. But by practicing this at home, when you go to Europe, it's easier to do. Do you think, I mean, obviously there is, it's no secret, there's more budget in Euroleague for developing efficient. And, you know, obviously tech has probably maybe, you know, maybe narrowed that gap because, you know, you can, you can always watch games back now. You can always evaluate yourself in a way that maybe you couldn't do 20 years ago. But what, what's the sort of process that you have that's, that, you know, as you say, gives you feedback, gives you analysis, allows you to, in European games, to, to self-improve, probably in a way that you couldn't if you were just refereeing in the BBL? Uh, it's all about knowledge, the, the knowledge of people who are involved in, in the EuroLeague basketball officiating. It's unbelievable. So we have 17 EuroLeague coaches, referee coaches, which is actually they are responsible. One of their duties is going to watch the game, after the game to give you feedback, evaluate your performance and send you reports about that performance. It's including your signals, including your body language, including your play calling from the start to the finish. Then when you're spending all day with the, your colleagues and referee coach, obviously they give you some feedback and even not only about the game, but maybe the game from their competition as well. So you watch some clips with them and you start trying to learn what they're doing in different leagues, how they're approaching conflict situations, how they're doing game management, what's happening uh, outside the court, how they're preparing for the game. And don't forget, we got 70 referees in EuroLeague. And, and uh, between me and you, there are no weak referees because they're there for their reason. And also out of these referees, we had people who officiated Olympic Games finals, who officiated Europe, Eurobasket finals, obviously EuroLeague finals, EuroCup finals. So you can put them all together. It's unbelievable, huge experience. So, you, so second tier is not only EuroLeague uh, referee coaches, they referees themselves. They got huge, huge, huge experience in their domestic leagues. And then when you officiate with them, you're always picking up something from them. And I'm telling you, they're the best because the way they handle the games, they're huge experience. You can only learn from it. Uh, one of the most important things is, I think, uh, I can say is Richard, Richard Stokes, the way he approached officiating in EuroLeague, the way he uh, trying to lead the group and educate the group. Because it's good to say, okay, when I nominate referees, okay, I've got that that referee was not good enough in that game, that referee was not good enough in this game. Okay, next next time I'm not gonna give them chance because they already messed up sometimes. He always gives the chance. It's all about education. It's not about punishment of referees. Uh, so going from that, every Monday we have uh, we used to have uh, before uh, feedback Zoom Zoom calls all the time when it was COVID situation. So even if it was no games, we used to have Zoom calls every week to make sure even without officiating, we carry on. Every Monday we got Zoom call about uh, during season. So, uh, so Richard picks up 19, 20 clips and we're actually talking about things which happened just recently in the, in the league, which calls, which problems, how can we improve? That's the main thing. How can we improve not to do same mistakes or be in better position not to miss something? Uh, we have weekly rule test and weekly, if there is no rule test, it's video test. 
So basically, your knowledge of basketball, you don't just prepare yourself for the beginning of the season rule test. You don't, you pass it and you forget about rules and you remember them only if something happens on the court. You're always refreshing your, your, your rules. As a referee, to be honest with you, sometimes I talk to referees and ask, when did you open rule book sometime, uh, last time? Oh, when I was preparing for the summer. As officials, you have to read rules, regulations, interpretations every time. For example, uh, correctable errors. If I ask tomorrow five five people about correctable errors, five people are going to say maybe they're not going to they're going not going to tell me how to resolve correctable errors uh, correctly. Let's put it this way. So once you read the rule, you pass the test, you forget the rule. But you have to rem remind yourself, you have to repeat yourself, and or, sorry, refresh yourself all the time. Video test is about, you know, group, because we go, when you got a group of 70 referees in Europe, you want to make sure that we don't have 50-50 thinking or understanding of the play. Okay, when we have now 90-10, it's understandable. You know, 90 people, 90% thinking that way, 10% thinking this way. Okay, we can improve somehow. But when you got 50-50, something needs to dramatically change. So when you identify these problems, that's why we got video tests to understand that all 70 referees now know how to break down the clip. If legal guarding position was established, where was the fit? Is it time and distance? Is it drive to the basket and act of shooting started or not act of shooting started? So we all need to be on the same page. So when we're on the court, it's going to be consistently, and there is consistency in the group and consistency from game to game that all 70 referees deliver the same decisions. Do you think that, you know, with all of that, with all the preparation that you get, um, I mean, obviously, you know, officials officials want to referee the big games, and officials want to you know improve. And it's like anyone else. If you're a player, you want to play at the highest level. You want to referee at the highest level. Um, what's the next? You know, what is the next stage for you now? Is it being able to? I don't know. Being chosen for a final four? Is it getting a shot at you know the Olympics? You know, yeah. Setting aside the politics of that at the moment. I mean, for you, what is is there a big dream on the refereeing side? The, the the dream is uh, like you said final four i think uh, that's uh, the top of the career and not only one final four hopefully one two and three you know you, you don't want just you know i'm 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 i, I don't know if i correctly say i'm i'm perfectionist and i'm really getting really annoyed if uh, something is not happening the way uh, i thought it was was going to happen then i started to doubt myself did i put enough energy and did they put enough effort to achieve something so i start to work harder again and if i do something i would like it to be done 100 percent and uh being in euro cup euro League competition me personally i'm not just happy to to make numbers and to fill up some gaps and uh to to, to be doing for example 20 euro cup games and only five euro league games you know because I want to be considered as a top official, and the top officials, obviously, you're, you're doing constantly EuroLeague games. And once you're doing constantly EuroLeague games, you deliver. And if you're consistent through the season and you show it with your abilities, hopefully to be rewarded with the final four. So, uh, yes, the, 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 ans the answer to your, to your question is, yes, I would like to be, the, the, to be officiating final four. Unfortunately, the situation with FIBA basketball, Euro basketball, doesn't allow EuroLeague referees to officiate any summer tournaments, including EuroBasket, women's, men's, and also Olympic Games. Hopefully, it's going to change in the future. 
we don't know if it's going to happen or not. It's like you said, it's politics. But apart from politics, nowadays I'm in Euroleague competition, and the top aim is to to be able one day or to be given chance to officiate in a final four. Let's talk about things back home. Um, obviously, we've all sat and back and watched what's happened in Ukraine with you know, with horror and, and disgust and, and sadness. Um, your family's been back there. Um, I mean, for you, what, let's start big picture, what's this last several months been like for you? Uh, to be honest with you, Mark, uh, if I take you back a little bit, um, uh, I had a big tragedy a couple of years ago. It was in uh, 2020, in, uh, in May 2020. My mom passed away because of COVID. That was uh, that time, you know, when we had COVID and uh, planes didn't fly. It was everywhere was locked down so we couldn't actually my sister she lives in canada so we couldn't actually go back to to my mom's funeral and that time because she died of COVID, uh the situation was they said uh, all COVID people who died we put them in the same one cemetery next to airport somewhere in kharkiv so obviously we were shocked we didn't want our mom to be somewhere buried where we don't even know where she was buried because we always thought that in the future we have family grave uh, in Kharkiv region, so that's you know was an idea. So, but money talks, and even from here, without being able to fly to the funeral, we organized that she was cremated in Kiev. So basically, her body was taken from Kharkiv to Kiev, cremated, and ashes took back to Kharkiv. And uh, in August 2020, things started to become better, uh, become better, and uh, we went back. Uh, with my sister, she she flied from um, Canada. I came from UK with all my family. We met and we had actually proper funeral in August 2020. But while I'm talking about that, so my mom is not there. Unfortunately, my father left uh, our family when I was 12, and uh, he just found another family. So my mom, she she you know gave us everything to me and my sister. I was lucky I was playing basketball, so, so my mom, she didn't need to worry about my financial situation because I was completely satisfied where I was. My sister, she had very good education and my mom did her best. She's, she's got pharmaceutical education and because of that education, she's got a very good job now in Canada. And actually, the reason why she moved to Canada, my sister, it's again Russia because back in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea. And, we, and the, 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 that time, not, the war started not now. In 2021, the war started in uh, 2014, when basically uh, some uh, Donbass and Lugansk area were taken away or were occupied. Let's put it this way, and Crimea was officially annexed by Russia. Uh, secondly, uh, from that time, my sister said she she used to live in Kiev. She rang me. She said, "Well, she, she was pregnant at the time, and she told me, I, I don't want my uh, children.'" to be born in a country where there is war. She said she loved the country, but she wants a better future for her children. And that time she started to look how to move away or move abroad. So she found a way with her husband. So they moved to Canada. And now she's doing very good, very well there, working in pharmaceutical company because of her education. And her husband does exactly the same job because he's pharmacist as well. And uh, kind, some kind of doctor, I'm not really good in that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so that's one part of the story. So as you can imagine, my family, uh, my close family is, is, is not there like my mom, my dad, my sister. Actually, I'll, I'll be 
I'll be honest with you, my dad is obviously there still. Uh, I, I'm talking to him. So we were talking, uh, at the beginning of the world, we were talking more often. Now things calm down. We're talking at least once in three, four, three, four weeks. And uh, his position doesn't allow him to leave Ukraine because he's, uh, he's been always working for the uh, emergency services, which is government organization. So now, for example, when things are getting bombed, you know, the, the things of emergency services is to go and find under ruins like, uh, alive people. So that's always he's been doing it. And uh, he's been training because he's around 60 now. Actually, I know he's 60. So uh, he's actually training young students and uh, making from them adults who can after go and do this job, basically. So that's his primary job. So he, because of mobilization, total mobilization in Ukraine, he couldn't leave. But uh, I took care, there is my uh, cousin, close cousin, so she is basically daughter of my father's uh, sister and her two children. They're here now. So as soon as war started, uh, they came here. They live with us. Uh, so we found for, her, for, for my nephew, we found a school. And another nephew, he's 16 years old, he started to go to college now. Then apart from that, uh, I managed to bring another six people from Ukraine, sponsoring them now. So they all based here with me. And actually, because they came and they didn't know, they doesn't know, they do not know a language or anything. So they actually work at my place where I'm managing now. So they all work for Glenwell. They all work inside the greenhouse. And uh, it's good for them because where they came from, so now they got everything, food, clothes, drinks, you know, and they are looking forward to, for the better situation to go back to Ukraine to see their relatives. Because for you, obviously, there's been, you know, there's been times back home when you've, you've not been able to contact your family and um, you, you know, you've, you've had that weight, which you know, just must be horrific at times you know, when you, you just you don't know. You don't know one way or the other. Um, but you, you had the point early in the year when you know you find out that your house had, had essentially disappeared off the map. It's a, it's a, it's not only my house. Unfortunately, it's a, everything is just disappeared. It's a lot of not uh, not even houses. It's complete quartals, whatever you call streets, just completely wiped out with these missiles. It's it's horrific. You know, we can talk about war we can talk about you know bills going up we can talk about lots of things yes it's all said but people are dying uh, houses are ruined people sleep on the streets people sleep in underground you know things are getting better now i think i mentioned earlier that now our you know army is doing a really good thing and pushing away occupants away from the borders away from the one region to another one which is amazing but this war i don't think it's going to finish soon because, uh, you know, Russians going to be stubborn and not Russians as a people, Russian as a government, they're going to be stubborn, they're going to push till the end. They got also all, all kinds of uh, threats, including nuclear threats. And because of this stubborn, they're going to they're going to be sending their troops. Obviously, Ukraine is going to be defending their territories. We're still going to lose so many lives. We're gonna, still going to lose, uh, you know, so many fates. We're still going to have injured children, killed adults. So it's unbelievable. So it's very hard to talk about this. And unfortunately, this is the reality. And uh, I don't see it finishing any soon unless government change in, in, the, in Russia. Does it, I mean, when you talk to people back home, and I, you know, the, the, the pleasure, the privilege of talking to some of your compatriots and your national team, 
um, while at Eurobasket. And, you know, again, some of the stories that they had of, of despair and, you know, the, the, the trauma of it all. Um, but it also seems, I mean, like people like yourself have found ways to, to help, in your case, taking people over. And, you know, or in some of the players, you know, that they'd find ways to send medic medication or, or you know, drugs or, or, you know, supplies into the country. It seems this incredible effort on behalf of Ukrainian expats, wherever you might be, to to make some kind of impact, you know, even if you're not there, you know, on, to use the cliche, on the battlefront. But there's been ways that people have found to rally behind those left behind. So to, to be honest with you, uh, my wife, she's, uh, she's a very good woman because when, when the war started back on the 24th of February, and, you know, you know the first, first couple nights you obviously couldn't sleep because you, nobody could believe it. You read the news and everything else. And, uh, and then what I said to my wife, I told her, look, I'm going back to Ukraine. She said, what for? I said, I just go to defend the country where I grew up, you know, just going to, to battle, you know, they need people, mobilize people. I'm still, you know, feel, feel like I'm Ukrainian. And she was, she was, uh, she looked at me and she told me, look, Edward, I, underst I understood if your mother was alive. I understood if your sister was there. Or you had, you know, some other close relatives. But she said, if you stay here, I think you would be able to help better with the, from your position by, uh, like you said, you know, uh, sponsoring money-wise, sending some help from here, trying to understand what's happening, how you could help. And uh, she actually, and, and she told me, if in future they, they're going to come, I mean, she mean Russians, they're going to come against NATO, against Great Britain, against Europe, and you want to go? She said, I would understand it because you're not going to go now to protect our children who live in Great Britain and in Europe. So if you go, if you want to go then, I'm not going to stop you. But she said, if you go now to Ukraine, she said, she told me you, 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 you would do a mistake. And to be honest, she was right because talking that time to my friends, they said, you know, you don't need to go there because even if you go some people went and they said no no we still got enough people who got military experience you just stay on the side when we need it we're gonna call you and some people still waiting for this call they still gonna go they still want to go and fight but uh, you know government is pretty is, is pretty clear about if you don't have military experience or you didn't have training they just don't send you to war to die basically and uh, yeah that was my approach then second one uh, I think it was still Johnson at the time, Prime Minister, because they're changing every year now. So Johnson, John, Johnson uh, said that uh, sponsoring Ukrainian uh, families, and as soon as we had it, uh, actually it started, started to apply straight away. So we brought uh, a couple of women, women with two children. Then uh, man was also already in Europe. So he came with his, uh, his wife. So yes, people started to come. And uh, it all became possible because I was applying and uh, giving them my details. I knew them. We were applying together on internet. So uh, they gave my details and I was responsible by taking them to me, meeting the airport, putting them to, to, to live somewhere, not somewhere, with me basically, finding them job, taking them to open their bank account, national insurance number, uh, taking them to job center, applying uh, for uh, biometric residency permits. So yeah, it took some time, but 
it was busy summer, but I'm happy where we are now because people, uh, I can see they're thankful. It is not a great situation. We certainly hope that it does get better, that it ends, that you know, peace breaks out and that you know, your family and everyone else in, back in Ukraine is, is safe, sound and prosperous um, before too long. Um, Ed, it has been brilliant having you on the podcast. Um, continued success, continued growth, continued big chances, continued you know, final four. Let it come soon. And, and also enjoy the NBL because it's there and it's great. Um, thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for guesting on the MVP cast. No, no, ple pleasure is all mine, uh, to be honest with you. Thank you very much for having me. And like I said, hopefully uh, it's, it became a little bit more clear about where we are and what we're doing in our life. So let's hope so. Thanks for that. Uh, that is it for this edition of the MVP cast. Don't forget you can subscribe to this on whatever podcast platform you wish. If you also want to follow us on social and pick up you know, daily tidbits of, of news and views around basketball, you can get us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search MVP or MVP 24-7. Another edition of the podcast coming very, very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, thank you so much as always for tuning in. And we'll see you soon.